Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to the Gospel of John once again, chapter 1. And uh, we're going to conclude the introduction this morning, verses 14 through 18. John's first 18 verses is, is his introduction to the Gospel of John. And this morning we're going to look at verses 14 through 18. In these few verses is the most significant verse dealing with the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is the most concise statement regarding God becoming man and dwelling on earth. Tell you what, let's go ahead and we got a oh we got Brother Anderson coming in. Everybody say amen. Here's one of our Vietnam veterans. Hey, brother. I had the honor with Dan to go visit him a couple weeks ago, and he comes whenever he can. And sometimes he got some rough days. And so he just praise the Lord when he can make it. So great to see it. I tell you, I was, we were in the back porch. They have a little sunroom at their house. And I'm just listening to him and Dan talk about their stories because they were at the same location in Vietnam. Yeah, so you're apart, same location. And I'm just sitting there listening. Well, this is really cool. So I, I was blessed. So rarely you can get me to shut up and listen. <laughs> that was one occasion. All right. Uh, what, what do you mean no? Uh, wow. Okay. Let's get back to the subject at hand. <laughs> the Gospel of John, chapter one. Let's go ahead and stand and read these verses together this morning. Follow with me in your Bibles as I read aloud. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of who I said, He who comes after me is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a cut and dry case in point that you tell us through the Apostle John, and that is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you sent Him. He came down took on the form of a man and dwelt amidst and among his sinful creation who had rebelled against him, who rebelled against you. But God, this is your love that we read about, that we are witnessing in your word. This is your mercy. This is your grace. This is all about you. It's all about what you have done and what you do. It's about you are merciful. It's about graciousness is a huge attribute of yours. And you want to show the world that you are gracious. And you show it in the sending and the giving of your son and the salvation of sinners who place their trust in him alone. So God, we praise you. We have the message. There is no other way. May we not hoard it. May we not keep it to ourselves. May you stir our hearts to be like John the Baptist who cry out and say there is one greater than I and his name is Jesus. 
It's in his name we pray. Amen and amen. You may be seated. Well, when you get to verse 14, and when it says, and the word became flesh, you leave no doubt as to who the word in verse 1 is. Remember, he starts out the gospel in verse 1. In the beginning was the word. Now we come to verse 14, and the word, what? Became flesh. John often uses the word, or the term, word, word, the term word to describe Christ. Let me give you a few other examples. One, for example, is in his first letter, chapter 1, verse 1, where he says this, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You get to Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, with the writing about the second coming of Christ. Listen to these words, penned by John in his vision. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Notice how the Apostle John would use the word, the term word, and use it to describe Christ himself. No, no different in the Gospel of John, verse 14. Notice the next phrase, and he dwelt among us. This means that he tabernacled. He tabernacled. Like in the Old Testament, he dwelled in a tent. His presence was in a tent, and they would have to carry that tent from location to location. And he was in that tent. Well, now the tent is no longer a tent. The tent is a human being. He dwells in human flesh, not sinful flesh. That's not what the word refers to here, but a human body. He's called the second Adam by Paul in Romans chapter 5. See, he came in as Adam and Eve. You see, Adam and Eve are a little bit different than the rest of creation. Adam and Eve were created good, and they had the ability to sin or not to sin. But once sin entered into the world, all their offspring only had the ability to what? Sin. No one ever had the ability to live a perfect and holy life whereby they could work their way to the Father. So Jesus, Paul says, is the second Adam. So when he took on human flesh, he, he, he had the human nature of Adam and Eve. Paul wants to go on to describe him even further. If you'd like to write down or turn to Philippians chapter 2, you're familiar with this passage. A little bit more detail about the, the incarnation, the person of Christ. Beginning in verse 5, I love this. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. And the idea here, the, 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 the attitude that Paul has in mind is the attitude of what? Humility and submission. You know, the world we live in, you take those two words and they're really not held up as in esteem as being good quality or character. No. You're not going to hear this from them. But what, what God wants in his children is submission and spirit and a humble heart. Listen to this. And that means treating others as more important than yourself, right? That's what that means, right? Not, not, not go for the gusto. And if anyone's in your way in pursuit of success, you push them out of the way to get what you want because you deserve the best. That is worldly. That is ungodly. That is not Christ-like. That is a satanic counterfeit. But here we have our Savior in verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, talking to the church. And then he goes on to explain who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or to hold on to. 
Well, I'm going to hold on to who I am. I'm going to hold on to the Father. I'm going to hold on to my rights. I am equal with God, and therefore I'm going to hold on to that. No, he did not. What did he do? Verse 7, he emptied himself. He said, I'm going to take those attributes that I am. I'm going to take who I am. I'm going to take those attributes, and I'm going to just put them on the shelf for a while. Why take on that body? See, God cannot stop being God. But the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, when he took on the form of a man, he took those divine attributes, being fully God, and he said, I'm going to put them on the shelf. I refused to hold on to them. I'm going to let go of them, and I'm going to trust myself with my Father and the Spirit. I'm going to submit to their will. I'm going to walk humbly among sinful humanity and walk humbly before my Father. So verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a what? A bondservant, and having been made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, there it is, by becoming obedient all the way to death, all the way to the cross. Verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So in the end, folks, next couple of verses will say, in the end, Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue will confess. Hitler will bow. Every atheist will confess. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. But we do not say that with a haughty spirit. We say that with a humble spirit because but by the grace of God, there go we. Right? Satan's going to bow. The demons bow. There's none like him. There's none other like him. Let's go back to the Gospel of John as we continue to look at it. He said he dwelt among us as a human being. The Son who had always ruled and reigned alongside the Father for all eternity. The one who created all things with the Father, equal with the Father, truly God, had now come to dwell as truly man and fully man in the very world he created and yet rebelled. Even his own, verse 11 of the Gospel of John, did not receive him. They rejected him. But notice what John writes next in verse 14. We saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Here John says, we watched. We saw. We saw his glory. But not just any honor of anyone. The honor and the, and, and the replica, the, 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 the beauty of the Father. What does he mean? I think John is saying here, we observed his whole life. And everything he said, everything he did... All his signs, all his miracles were pointing to the glory of God. So, and we witnessed that. We saw that. You go to 1 John chapter 1. He says they even touched the glory. They heard him. They listened to him. They saw him. They touched him. They saw the perfect glory of God in Christ The power of God that was visible to Israel in the wilderness is now visible in human flesh. 
the power of God that was visible to Israel in the Old Testament in the wilderness was now visible in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? So I said in 1 John 1, 3, it says they also touched him. I'm going off a little bit in John here. They also touched him. What was so important about the incarnation? Here it is. God is saying, I am making myself approachable. Think about that for a minute. In the Old Testament, he's only approachable through priests in the blood of bulls and goats. God's saying, that was just a shadow of what I had planned and what I had in mind for all these hundreds and hundreds of years. All that was a foreshadow of me sending my son. And in him, through his blood, I am really, truly approachable. There's no steps to go through to be in connect with God. I got to jump through this hoop and 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 on and on and on. And eventually, hopefully, you might get to God. You might be able to approach him. He might hear what you have to say. He might hear you cry out to him. No, it's not jumping through a bunch of hoops. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's one hoop, so to speak. He's not a hoop. It is Christ, God himself. If you don't jump through him, you simply trust him. The unapproachable God is now approachable. The one who Moses could not look at on the mountain. The one who Isaiah proclaimed is holy, holy, holy. The one who John fell as a dead man before him in Revelation 1. He is the one he, that no one could stand in his presence. He is now approachable. What can this mean? What does this mean? So what? Well, here's the so what. That means in spite of sin's entrance into the world, in spite of the corruption of the heart, in spite of my sin nature, in spite of my corrupted body, my mind, my soul, my affections, and in spite of being totally depraved and unable to do anything about my sinful condition before a holy God, no ability to get out of my condemned standing before a holy God, God gave Christ. He's now approachable. In other words, sinners cannot approach God on their own. They tried at the Tower of Babel. Right? That didn't work. Jews, Judaism, the nation of Israel took the law and they tried to make it as something to reach God with. To try to form their own, create their own form of righteousness. But that wasn't why the law was given. It was to point out to them that they couldn't do that. So we take physical things of this world to try to reach God. And we even try to take the things that God gives us spiritually to try to reach God. But the one that he gave to reach him is Jesus Christ. That's what John is arguing over and over and over again in verses 1 through 18. And that's all we had the next phrase. Look at this. Full of grace and truth. What does this mean? 
As one commentator points out, he says this, this describes how Jesus carried himself. It conveys the character of God. It conveys the character he conveyed to a watching world. He wanted to convey this. God saying, world, you're condemned. But I want to show you something about my character that you could never, ever otherwise find out, know, or understand, and that is I am gracious. Here's what happened at the fall. Here's what did not happen at the fall. Satan did not defeat God at the fall. Satan did not out-trick God at the fall. God said, go ahead, have at my creation. Because whatever you do, I'm going to turn around and use it for my glory. God tells the enemy. That's why Paul later on in Romans says, all things work together for good. To those who love God, to his children, those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because God is sovereign. Because God is in control. Hey, you read the news, there is no control. Everything's out of control. But folks, don't believe that. Humanly speaking, yeah, everything is out of control. But the one we do not see is an absolute control. I praise God that there's so much turmoil on earth. Because it really kind of gets my attention towards heaven. It helps me to look forward to what is to come. It gives me hope. And I need that hope. Does that make sense? If everything was going really good, and not many bad things were happening, I would not give God that much attention. I must tell you that's the frailty of my faith. But he is full of grace and truth. He is gracious and truthful. He is full of grace. In other words, God is the one here that is doing the seeking. Romans 3 says there's no one who seeks after God, but the incarnation is God seeking after sinners. God is doing the seeking. He's also full of truth. Jesus, With Jesus, there's no error. You can trust and hang your life, your soul, on every word he says. And, and Christ These two, these two, grace and truth, are perfectly conjoined, embodied in Christ. Think about full of grace for a minute. Last year, probably the beginning of last year, we were in the book of Ephesians. Turn there just for a moment. I want to just kind of explain. I want to visit Ephesians chapter 1 just for a minute and and, and look at this grace again. You're familiar with chapter 1, verse 3. Kind of add, put some meaning to this grace. The gift is Christ, but what do we get in Christ? What does God give in Christ? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in who? Christ. And he goes on and gives a list of these spiritual, in other words, they're spiritual blessings. He's not talking physical blessings like the prosperity theology gospel people would like you to think, okay? God does bless physically, but that is not the point of Christ. That is not the focus of these blessings, okay? Those blessings, by the way, are only temporal. These are eternal blessings, and they're in reference to heaven. The physical blessings are temporal and in reference to earthly things, and God does that. 
but God's common grace does that. We're talking about special grace that is we get in Christ that lasts for all eternity. First one is in love, he adopts us, four and five. In love, he predestined us to adoption. Now, verse seven, in him we have redemption through his blood. Forgiveness. God, what did I do to earn your forgiveness? Nothing. That's grace. It's a gift. You, you trust Christ. You, you see that that grace is, that forgiveness is in Christ. And that was one of the reasons why the, the Pharisees, the spiritual leaders of Israel wanted Jesus dead is because he, he claimed to have the power to forgive and he knew and they knew that only God had that power, but they didn't know he was God. Ten and eleven in him also we have obtained an inheritance. Verse thirteen in him we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. In other words, those who God chose, those who God adopted, He promises to deliver them no matter what. And they are sealed by the Spirit, and therefore they cannot lose it. They cannot lose their salvation. God might take them home early, but He's going to bring them home to heaven. But they cannot lose their salvation. And He goes on in 14, goes on in 18, talks about the inheritance. This is the grace of God. All that is in Christ is ours. So when God pours his grace, it's like the ocean wave after wave after wave after never stops. His grace is infinite. So let's go back to our gospel again. Chapter 1. We continue to look at this full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. Now let's keep in mind, real quick, I have a little side note, that uh, all this that we're reading in John is in reference to his first coming. Let's keep that in perspective and context. So when we read when Jesus is full of grace and truth, it's when he came the first time. But the Bible also talks about he's coming again. He's not going to be full of grace and truth the second time. He's going to be full of wrath and judgment. Okay? I just want to make sure we got that understood. You have people out there talking universal salvation. You got people talking that, that, that really misunderstand that, that God is just a God of love and not a God of wrath. It's just wrong, wrong, wrong. Let's talk about he is also full of truth for a moment. Truth about what? He is the source of all physical and spiritual truth, number one. He is the source of all physical and spiritual truth from beginning to end. You want to know how humanity came to be? Christ is the truth about that. You want to know how the mountains came to be? You want to know how the stars came to be. You want to know how the oceans came to be. You want to know, looking under the microscope, how the the protozoans and all this other stuff, the molecules and and the atoms and the amoebas and all these things came to be. Or a telescope and to see the vastness of the, of the universes, how they all came to be. Christ is the truth about all those things. He created them. 
He certainly knows about them. <laughs> he's the source of all that we see, but he's also the source of what we do not see. He's the true source of who the Father is. And that's John's point here, overall. He's the truth about God. He's, he's the truth about the giving side of God. You see, what the new covenant is all about, what the gospel is all about, it's about showing the universe, it's showing the world that God has a side of him called graciousness. That God is a giving God and he loves to give. He loves to give. He's merciful and loving. He's patient and kind, forgiving and giving. If you want to see and look at the purest form of who God is, look to Jesus Christ. There is no other. There is no truer, no purer form of God other than Jesus Christ because he is the very nature of God. He is God. That is John's point here. And it catapults us into the rest of his gospel. Let's go on to verse 15 because John, the writer of this apostle, he interjects the Baptist here, John the Baptist. Just one verse here. In other words, after 400 years of silence, after 400 years of God being quiet, all of a sudden you have John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament saints, comes on the scene, coming from the wilderness, from the wilderness in other words, coming out of nowhere. What crying for the wilderness, they would never expected that. They would expect the guy to show up in a synagogue or the temple. This guy came out of the wilderness as the forerunner of Christ, to proclaim Christ, to prepare Christ. So out of the nowhere, out of the wilderness, comes John the Baptist. And it is John the Baptist in verse 15 that says, This one who's coming after me is higher rank than I. He existed before me. Wait a minute, you're older than him. You existed before, no. He existed before me because this is John the Baptist recognizing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's John the Baptist recognizing his deity. But that simple statement in the end of verse 15 is higher rank than I, for he existed before me. His ministry was creating excitement once again. A lot of excitement. It had been dead. God had been silent. And all of a sudden, this guy out of nowhere begins to proclaim that Christ is here in our midst. And he's preparing them for the Redeemer. And, and, and he was a great phenomenon in Israel at that day. That is John the Baptist. And, and his ministry was creating excitement but the Jews this whole time, I think we're starting already to think about, hey, we got our kings coming. He's going to set this up for us. We're going to become a nation once again on earth, and he's going to help us rule in the reign. They didn't understand that Christ came to deal with sinfulness of humanity. And that his, his dealing with Israel as a nation was not at that time, but that would be later on in history. Let's go on to verse 16. Notice what it says. For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. I really take verse 16 and 17 together. 
And let me explain. In verse 16, it says, His fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. The Greek word filled can either mean accumulation, like, 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 like the snow accumulates. And so it becomes more and more and more. One blessing after another. And, and that fits the text, and I even think it fits the context. But there's also another rendering here that's possible, and it's used the word replace or supersede. It's superseding grace. For in his fullness, we've all received grace upon grace. There's a grace that supersedes the grace of everything, verse 17, even the grace of the law. You don't think of the law as being very gracious, do you? But it is. The law is a gift from God. Right? Amen? Why is that? Because the law was never given to save. It was given to tutor us to Christ. So it's a beautiful, wonderful gift, the law is. It says, here's God and here's his standard. I can't keep it. Somebody's got to keep it for humanity or humanity's doomed. I'm doomed. Hence, he sends his son. So, So that's why Paul in Galatians says that the law was given to tutor us to Christ. It's our teacher. It's our schoolmaster. It's such a great gift from God, and it's holy and, and good and wonderful, Paul says in Romans 7. So I look at verse 16 saying that which is, it, it, it supersedes what has happened under the old covenant. And it easier folds into verse 17 when he compares the law and grace, Moses and Christ. For this reason, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ supersedes the Mosaic law. He supersedes the old covenant. Why? Because he kept it. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. Not only that, he's the, he's the one that created the law. He's the law giver. He makes the laws. See, see, when God sets standards, he sets it according to his own character. There is nothing outside of God which teaches or tells God what is right or wrong. God is God and there is no other. He doesn't have a source he goes to. He doesn't have a resource he goes to to figure out black and white what is right and what is wrong, what is true and what is false. He himself is the truth. He himself is the resource and the source. No one counsels him. No one counseled him in saying, here are ten commands. Will these help you out, God? And he picked three or four of them and added to it. No, no. It's all of God. So we have in verse 17 this comparison between Moses and the law. In other words, Christ supersedes the law and the prophets. He is the lawmaker. He determines right from wrong. There's nothing outside of God that determines truth or righteousness. He does. A more clear understanding of this, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you will. I, I try to think, how, what can help me understand this a little bit better? Make it a little bit more clear particularly in comparison to the law and grace. And I think we can find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul himself, his context, is talking about his ministry and his inadequacy in ministry, in ministering the gospel. We find that in verses 3 and 4, being manifested to you as a letter of Christ. Uh, Carried for us, verse 3, I'm talking about chapter 3. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but in tablets of human hearts. I love that. That's a reflection of, of what we read in Ezekiel and Jeremiah about God would write his, 
his, what, his truths on tablets of the heart, right? Not on stone. That is a work of God, by the way. Wait, we'll go on. He says in verse 4, we have confidence through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. If we're going to be adequate, if we're going to be successful in ministry, it's purely God. I mean, he equips us. It's by his power. He builds his church. He equips me. As I'm preaching, he's doing a work. I'm just a servant, Paul's saying, and that's a reflection we all should have of the church, of each other. But we'll go on. I really want to go on and focus on 9, 10, and 11. Here it is. For the ministry of condemnation, that is the law, okay? The ministry of law condemns people. You look at the law and you realize, I fall short, therefore I stand condemned before a holy God, okay? Verse 7, he calls it the ministry of death. So verse 9, the ministry of condemnation has glory. Wow. The ministry of the law is very glorious. It gives God glory. The law gives God glory. Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. That's Christ. He's the minister of righteousness. He is the righteousness of God. He fully fulfilled that law to the T. It's his law to begin with. Verse 10, for indeed what had glory, referring to the Old Testament law, what had glory, in this case, has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. There is a glory that surpasses the old glory. Christ is the glory that surpasses the gloriousness of the law. It's not that the law is bad. The law is holy and just and good. It's that Christ is the pinnacle. That's the point of the New Testament. All Everything else... All the law, all the prophets were merely there to point to Christ. He's coming. He's coming. And it's all going to be about Him. Genesis 1 1. Everything. It was all about Him. It's all about Him. You get to Revelation 20, 21, 22. It's all about Him. All of history is about Him. And that's what we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The two words I looked at particularly were 9 and 10. One was abound in glory and surpasses it, verse 10. Notice the Old Test, the glory in the Old Testament faded away. You see, when Moses came down from the mountain, he covered himself because that glory was slowly, what, fading. But in Christ, it doesn't fade. It begins to abound. He becomes more glorious this church becomes more glorious. Isn't that beautiful? So when you go back to the Gospel of John, verse 17, you have the comparison for the law was given through Moses. We say amen. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. And notice the switch in words in verse 17 back in chapter 1. Giving of the law and the word realized to Jesus Christ. The law was given, truth was realized. The law was given, truth was realized. Here it is. In Christ, the grace and truth of God is in full view. It wasn't in full view in the Old Testament. It was a shadow. But in Christ, God says, I want to show you my grace 
and my truth in full view. Here it is, because here he is, my son. In the old covenant, it was a shadow. You could see glimpses of it, so to speak, but it was more covered. But here God says it's in full display. That's the incarnation of Christ. So in Jesus Christ, we see he is the perfect explanation of grace and truth. He is the truth of who God is. Now, here's kind of a kicker because it affects me. Because when I look at Christ, I see God, fully God, and he's burning with holiness. He, he, he's perfect, and he's just. He's perfect in every way. And that's threatening to me. You never want to go up to a perfect person. You get intimidated. Besides, we're not going to find one here. Okay. The grace community, that's no problem. Any church says no problem. There you go. But he's so threatening, and yet he's full of grace. So he's also full of compassion. You got these two extremes of God. You got his perfection, that he's holy, 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 and really unapproachable, and yet he is so gracious and loves to give at the same time. And I'm thinking, ah, How does this affect me? Where do I see this elsewhere in Scripture? Turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, I think we see these things being brought together, not just in Christ, but, listen, listen, look at me, look at me. Look at me, please. Not just in Christ, but in our worship. Psalm 2. Yeah, we'll begin to wrap up in about 30 minutes. No, I'm kidding. We're, We're getting there. You know, we're real close to verse 18, so we're almost there. Verse 7 of Psalm 2. Listen to these words. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son, today I have what? What's that in reference to? The incarnation. John 1, 1 through 18. We find that here prophesied in Psalm 2. But then after that, he begins to talk about Israel's hope as a nation, he begins to really look beyond the church age to the time where he'd set up his millennium. And so he says, ask me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Verse 8, this is a time when Christ will rule and reign. And the very ends of the earth as your possession, you shall break them with a rod of iron, you shall shatter them like earthenware. You will rule and reign for a thousand years, in other words. Now therefore, O kings... Earthly kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Now, verse 11. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Park it right there. Let your mind soak on that one verse, verse 11, for a moment. Wrap your head around verse 11. How in the world can we worship the Lord with reverence on one hand and rejoice with trembling on the other? How can you rejoice with trembling? Because Christ is perfect. He is holy, 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 and yet he is gracious, and he loves to give, therefore I rejoice. I'm threatened by his righteousness. I'm intimidated by his perfections, but yet I know that he is full of grace and truth. God's saying, I, who am the creator of this universe, 
I, who am holy, 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 in my giving of my son, I am now approachable. Come to me, you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what will happen, you will worship the Lord with reverence, and you will rejoice with trembling. I love verse 12, do homage to the son. You know what the Hebrew means there? Kiss the son. Kiss the king's ring is the idea here. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. That he may not become angry and you perish in the way. Oh, you got a little glimpse of the second coming of Christ there, don't you? Remember that? His first coming, he's full of grace and truth. His second coming, he's going to be full of wrath and judgment. This is the same God who Psalm, my, I just put this together this morning. It helped me a little bit in application. My wife is memorizing verses in Psalm 139. The rate she's going, she's going to try to do the whole psalm in the next couple of weeks. That's a joke, by the way. But she, was in the, she, she said she's memorizing the first four verses. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. This God who is holy, this God who is perfect, who's omniscient, he knows everything, he sees everything. And he's perfect. And it's kind of intimidating. He's, he's the one. He, Paul, excuse me. David says, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, you know my goings about. You know every move I make. You know every thought that I think. You know every path I take. You are intimately acquainted, verse 3, with all of my ways. Even before there's a word in my tongue, you know what I'm going to say because you know my heart better, better than I do. And God, you still say, you want me to approach you? Whoa. And he goes, yes. Just come through my son. Now, beloved, this can be applied to unbelievers, but I want to close by applying this to your life. today. Go with me to 1 John chapter 1. Because every believer, at one time or many times in their life, in a relationship with God, in a relationship with Christ, falls out of fellowship. Right? We get in trouble. We find little sin patterns that get in the way. John, now I'm going back to John, the author of Gospel. This is First John, his first letter, chapter 1, because this relates to us. And that's what I wanted to do. How does this incarnation of Christ relate to me and to you on a daily basis? Look at 8, 9, and 10. The one who is holy, the one who is perfect, the one who knows you and that you're not holy and that you're not perfect, that you're not even close, the one who knows your thoughts of anger towards your wife or your husband or your children or a co-worker, the one that knows your motives are impure, the one who... who there are things that you're embarrassed to tell others, but God knows them. He is the one that says this. If we say that we have no sin, and notice John saying we, we, not them, not they, not the unbeliever, but we who profess Christ. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'm skipping verse 9 on purpose. Go to 10. If we say that we have not sin, we make him and that's a capital H in reference to God. We make God a liar and his word is not in us. So what does God want us to do as children of God 
He goes, I already know what's going on in your life. I know I'm not approachable. You cannot approach me on your own. I'm perfect. I'm holy. What do you do? You do the same thing you did the first time you came to Christ. You run to him with all your sin, all your shame, all your embarrassment, all your evil, all your wickedness, all your sinfulness as a child of God who in all those things has just knocked you out of fellowship with God. God's not saying, well, here's a different way to get back to me. No, it's the same way you came to him in the first place. It's through Jesus and in Jesus Christ. And so he says, verse 9, if we confess our sins, if we agree with God that I have been doing wrong, God, and it upsets you, swallow your pride, humble yourself before a holy God. That's what you did on day one when you came to the foot of the cross and got saved. In other words, what, 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 what John is saying is this. What you did the very first day you came to me, I want it to be a lifestyle for you. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves, even as Christians. If we confess our sins, what? He, that is Jesus. We know it's Jesus because of the verses before. We know it's Jesus because in chapter 2, the verses afterwards. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you're in sin, child of God, you go right to Christ again because he's the only way. You know that he has the authority and the power to forgive. That's what the Gospels exist for, to tell us that. And so this, this gospel, this relationship with God begins, becomes a lifestyle of confession. I was told years ago, John MacArthur would go to Europe and Eastern Europe back in the 80s when it very first started opening up, and he'd be invited to preach, and Christians there labeled themselves repenters because it was a lifestyle. He thought, he goes, man, that was powerful. You know, in some places were known as Christians. There they were known as repenters because it characterized their life because they knew, God, you know, I have a relationship with you. It's like your children, right? They get on your nerves. That fellowship gets breached. You still love them, but you don't like them. They still have the same last name, right? But, but, but they're out of fellowship with mom and dad. What do you want them to do? You want, they, want, they need to know that they're so loved that even in the worst of times, the darkest of their own sins that they've committed against mom and dad, they could still come to mom and dad and ask forgiveness and not get run over. Why? Because you too are gracious. You are a reflection of God because of Christ. Let's pray.